The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a Friday. And of course, none of that would be possible were it not for the efforts of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, sir? Doing very well. Was it A squared plus B squared equals C oh, squared? I think that's all I can get muster out from the old high school days. <laughs> you know, this, this whole hour is about uh, the, the phenomenon known as the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. And now we have have young Sheldon to look forward to. Um, that's going to be entering, I think, its third season in the fall. So if you need your Big Bang fix in, in the form of a prequel, you're going to have that in the fall. But last night, I believe I watched the greatest series finale of any kind in any genre of TV in my entire life. It was just amazing. So, of course, Suzanne Mitchell, if we're going to talk in these high-flown terms and rhapsodize about the Big Bang Theory and the cast and the writing and the whole phenomenon, we needed to get George Beam today. He was the only guest we had in mind. The only one. Let me uh, read about the George Beam and let's bring him on. George Beam frequently writes about popular culture. His many books have explored, among other topics, the fictional works of Stephen King, Patricia Cornell, J.K. Rowling, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Philip Pullman. He resides in Southeast Virginia. His website is georgebeam.com, which we'll be sure to get out again before the end of the hour. And back, way, way back in 2011, he wrote Unraveling the Mysteries of the Big Bang Theory, an unabashedly unauthorized TV show companion, a wonderful book, which Gary and I read thoroughly. And this is talking about all kinds of various people from Steve Jobs to Stephen King to Big Bang Theory is George Beam's 12th time on Manson Mitchell. All right. And we are so thrilled to have him back. Welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, George Beam. Thank you. You know, it must be synchronicity because after all, the show uh, ended after 12 seasons. So there you go. 12 and 12. It's all about the 12s today. And uh, it was so funny when we called you up and you said, oh, was I supposed to watch last night? <laughs> that that brought a laugh to Gary and I to start out <laughs> yeah, the like hour. Yeah, like you missed that. <laughs> and then but I said was, Bazinga. So. And you said Bazinga. That's appropriately enough. Um, let's go ahead and just throw it to you, George. For my money, the best series finale ever. I was moved. Oh, God, it was amazing. It was beautiful. How did it affect you? Well, I should preface it by saying that uh, as as a writer, I'm very, very concerned about how books end. And a lot of other writers have said the same thing, that if you don't have a good ending to a novel, it really puts a bad taste in your mouth. Well, this particular episode of The Big Bang was really something that they had to scramble to work toward, because when Jim Parsons decided he didn't want to do the show any longer, that was it. The show was going to have to end suddenly whatever plot and storylines they had would have to go out the window and they had to scramble like a fast like a receiver a football receiver in order in order to get across that finish goal line so having said that i think that the ending uh and the whole build up for the whole evening actually uh was well was well conceived it was well executed and um i think that with sheldon uh, getting up as he did in front of the the whole world and the Nobel Committee, and discarding his 
long speech that he was going to give, which was about himself, and and putting it aside to say, you know, uh, I was going to read this, but I'm not. And uh, he acknowledges his friends who stand up at his request, and it really brings the whole show full circle because the whole show, from the very beginning, has been has been about growing up. It's a rite of passage. It's been a rite of passage show, and that's why we have been there for 12 years as viewers. It's true. They are the number one family of choice and the smartest one ever uh, taken in the aggregate there in TV history. That's the way I refer to it. They are the family of choice. And now in rerun heaven, where they've been in in a parallel universe for years, Suzanne and I, like millions of other people will make that their dinner, our viewing. So we have done that and taken great pleasure in remembering these lines. And, and half the time, Suzanne's reciting them. I have to say, hey, cut it out. I know what he's going to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and she'll predict it and then quote it. You get into the very fabric of that whole phenomenon, and it becomes very personal to each viewer. Well, you know, it's when you watch TV on a regular basis and it's a show you like, it becomes part of the fabric of your life. And so with Big Bang, every Thursday night, you know, it's 8 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time at least, uh, it's time to turn the TV on and watch the Big Bang. It's something to look forward to. It becomes part of your routine. And now that it's it's gone, I'm glad that they have young Sheldon to carry, carry things forward because there's a great deal with young Sheldon that has to be explored. And the child actor that plays him is phenomenal. He's just perfect for that role. He he is a little cutie, that's for sure. We need young Sheldon to carry us backward is the way I look at it. <laughs> you know, I think one of the last time or two that we had you on, we were talking about how, you know, what are they going to do with Raj? And we're not laughing as hard as we used to in the beginning. And so um, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm glad that Jim Parsons figured out how not to sink all the way to the bottom before deciding that that was the end of it. And I thought they had a very um, elegant ending. There was one thing that did bother me about last night. I would have expected his mother to be in Sweden with them, Laurie Metcalf. And, I know. Um, and I thought that was a little bit of an oddity, not, not to have her there. What do you think about that, George? That seems strange to me, too. Well, it's really bizarre. I mean, in the real world, that just wouldn't happen. Right. He had his friends there, but not his mom. So that was kind of an incongruity for me. But I thought it was really well done. Additionally, after Young Sheldon, they had the half-hour behind-the-scenes special, which Gary and I enjoyed very much, looking at the different sets, talking with uh, Leonard and Penny. And then to just put the, the bow right on top of the whole thing is the whole cast was on Stephen Colbert last night, with bare naked ladies singing the theme song at the end of the show, mm-hmm. and it just seemed like like it was done right instead yeah. of done poorly. It was well thought out, and it was really done right. That was my sense of it. Well, actually, you know, it was a whole evening of Big Bang one way or the other because you had the show itself running in two segments of 30 minutes back-to-back. Then you had Young Sheldon, and at the very end, you know, the whole episode of Young Sheldon really set up and buttresses 
the uh, show that went before it so that you've got young Sheldon sitting there alone in his garage at 5 a.m. in the morning uh, as the class president who asked his classmates to come and join him for the announcement of the winners at, at that ungodly hour. And, of course, nobody shows up. And his mother would his mother knew that. She came in, and, and he didn't want her to be there either. So he sat there and lamented how he was alone. And then we see all of these flash, see all of these camera shots of the current cast of Big Bang as small children who are uh, Sheldon's age, and then we know that things are going to turn out okay in the future. And then Sheldon, in his adult voice, as Jim Parsons says, well, and, you know, actually I wasn't alone, or in the uh, later I wasn't alone. So that tied it in really very well. I didn't expect that. I thought that. so. In fact, it was brilliant. I thought, okay, well, they got picked up one more viewer because I just I was not a fan of Young Sheldon, in my opinion, which means nothing except to me. I just thought they started the show too early, that they were handing yeah. the baton off a couple of years sooner when they could have started it this year. But I'm not Chuck Lorre, so I don't get to make that decision. <laughs> yeah, I would. Have, but, it uh, would have been perfect, actually, to have the Young Sheldon show first and then have the Big Bang show run. That would have been the perfect segue. Well, now that's that's an interesting take on it as well. You know, so now with them having shown those children, and by the way, Bernadette from Yorba Linda, California, that was two towns over from where I grew up. I spent countless hours in Yorba Linda, California, birthplace of Richard Nixon there, and mm -hmm. I would go to Yorba Linda all the time, and here she was little Miss Yorba Linda, and I thought, oh my God. Yeah. She, and I'll tell you something, Bernadette, in my generation, I, I haven't been there lately, but in my generation, a Bernadette of that time period in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s growing up there would have fit Yorba Linda perfectly. They picked the right place for her to be from. Well, they do a lot, you know, they do a lot of research on that when they start building the back history. I mean, Sheldon coming from Texas is, was a stroke of genius. I mean, it's so far from everything that that he would really appreciate. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, he'd be up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for instance. Or today, yes. if it were the same show, he would be in uh, the Seattle area because of the uh, you know Microsoft or Silicon Valley down in California. The high-tech corridor, that's right. That's absolutely right. And it's just, I don't think it could have been done better than it was. I was so impressed. And I'll tell you this, George. I said to Suzanne about an hour before the show, I'm just, I'm, I would, I don't, wouldn't bet my life on anything, but I would bet at least a small sum of money. I told her that they are finally, finally going to get that elevator fixed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they hadn't done that, that would have upset a lot of people. It's like having a loose, loose tooth in your mouth that you kept keep playing with until it's finally, <laughs> until it's finally corrected. You know. For 12 years. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's like having a burr under the saddle for 12 years. It's like the princess and the pea. And but, they dropped uh, it in at the, in the right thing, because Suzanne was talking to me about, uh, after we had watched this and we were taking it in and discussing it, of course, mm -hmm. uh, they dropped that whole elevator thing at just the right time to maximize the crisis to put that that cherry on the icing of his crisis point because he wins the Nobel Prize's lifelong dream and then everything seems to be falling apart because he can't handle change. Yes, and that of course is the recurring motif with Sheldon. He could never manage change. He wanted life to remain in stasis. 
And any time there was any kind of personal or professional change, he simply couldn't adapt to it because he wasn't equipped for it. But as I said, you know, things really did come full circle, more for Sheldon than anyone else, which is appropriate. Uh, I was, as I said before, kind of disappointed with, with the character Raj in how they figured out how they were going to use him in the show, because in the end, you know, it was interesting, USA Today interviewed him, uh, the, char- the actor that plays Raj, and he said, well, you know, how did you as a character change? He said, well, you know, Raj was finally able to talk to girls. Well, that's just that not amazing. enough. You could have folded him into no. the character of um, Howard, and there really would have been no real difference in the show. And you know what else I noticed, George, is that they didn't um, pander to something superficial by having him fall in love in the the last sequence. Or come out as gay or something. They played it straight to the end. They didn't throw something in just just for the effect. Right. Yes, but, and I, I appreciated that. He yeah. was all excited about sitting next to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> and, and apparently she agreed to go with him to the uh, the Nobel ceremony. But then when he's holding her hand, she goes, "This is not a date," and and right, it's like, right. okay, right to the end, they're being true blue. Mm-hmm. That they're not going to do something artificial to make it different. I so, know. Well, yeah. and you know, the sad thing here is that I thought they had a great thing going. When Raj was dating the dermatologist, Emily, and, yeah, um, yeah, me em, too. You know, Emily was just a wonderful character with a lot of personality. They really could have developed that. Instead, they just abandoned it, and we never, we really never knew or heard what happened. So that's no, sort of my didn't. disappointment with how the writers handled the Raj character. They just had this hit and miss way where they simply didn't project his life for the next twelve years to see how it might change because. You know, in fiction, when you have a character that's on stage as often as he is, and there's no character development, it's it's a little boring. And I, I agree with you. I, I I cannot dispute you on anything you said, George, but I'll tell you how I made myself okay with it. It's all right for me the morning after the big finale. It's okay with me that Raj turned out to be the guy that can't keep a relationship together, who is still with his family of choice, his professional colleagues, and that bond that they've shared. Because in social circles, church circles, work circles, everybody knows a Raj. Everybody can point to somebody that just can't manage to keep it together with the woman he tries and sometimes tries too hard. Not like a Wallowitz tried too hard where he's obnoxious there, but just just couldn't find the, the formula to, to make something click for good. And everybody knows a Raj like that. And so to me, I'm getting that, all right, Raj's life will go on and probably he will find someone at some point. We're just not going to be there to see it. Well, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, but, you know, remember, too, that the whole notion of the show, uh, the first episode aired in 2007, and the precursor to the show was a movie called Revenge of the Nerds, which was in 1984. Oh. And really what we've had is we've had a transformation in popular culture where the nerd is no longer the uh, butt of the jokes and um, this stereotype. The nerds were the ones that finally you know, because of the computer knowledge that they've had and and, and all of the uh, funding they've gotten over the years in Silicon Valley, they've become the leaders. I mean, you look at the leading companies in the world, they're all computer companies. 
you know, and you know what else? In in the uh, in the in the series last night, Amy Farrah Fowler got up and talked about women in science. And I said to Gary, after twelve years of these nerds and mm-hmm. people loving them and talking about science for, for every single week, I have to wonder if that's actually made a pop culture difference even in the schools and the young people. Would that have affected them? That it's really okay. For girls to be good at math and science. Well, you know, I I think so um, because first, this comes from a very credible source. I mean, in real life, she has a degree in neuroscience. She's the right. only one on the cast that does, and so it's not simply a character talking in character, but it's a character that's mirror that's mirroring real life. And there's another woman, young woman, she played on I think Growing Pains or Growing Years. Uh, the, the show uh, that ran for some seasons. The uh, I think years. her last name is yeah. The Wonder Years. Her last name, I think, Danica. Is that her? Is that yes. her last name? Yeah, she played she, uh, She's very good yeah. with math, and she she actually has gone out and promoted STEM research and and math skills, and written a book about it as well. So yes. I think that that the world is changing, uh, albeit slowly. Right. It is. And uh, yes, uh, the lady that played Winnie actually at UCLA came up with a math theorem that nobody had before. She had it published. And so oh. she's famous in, in mathematics circles for that, in addition to being the beloved Winnie of the Wonder Years. Her real name is Danica Keller. Danica that's Keller. Right. That's right. Exactly and so. Danica Keller was in at least one episode of The Big Bang Theory. Yes, she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. There and so we have that and yes, Maya Biala, God bless her. I I really read that loud and, and heard it loud and clear, uh, George, last night when she's giving her speech and she's encouraging more young women to enter science. That I go, oh, that's the actress talking through the character because that's very big for her. Yes, I mean that's. I think that's an important. It's an important moment, and you have to realize, of course, you know, people tend to talk about pop culture as having no value, but that's just not true because when you have really good science fiction shows, for instance, uh, it inspires uh, young young people to go out and become uh, math whizzes or engineers or scientists. Um, you know, it has a huge uh, impact on, on the population and, and certainly on young minds. I mean, this yes. is why, for instance, the Navy always gives uh, the director of Top Gun and all the sequels, all the planes and aircraft carriers they want, because they know it's the best advertisement for getting naval aviators. You know what? <laughs> that is a great point. It makes sense, doesn't it? And look at all the the submarine technology made available or made known to Tom Clancy. Well, you know, and Tom Clancy was able to go over go everywhere and do everything because he was the um, fair-haired boy for the military community, whereas Francis Ford Coppola, who did Apocalypse Now, had to rent his helicopters from um, the Philippine government, who was using them for drug interdiction at the time. They had to get them, shoot the scenes, take them back, repaint them. So it just depends on what side your, your bread is buttered on. You know what? That's a brilliant point. I never heard that before. What I did hear regarding Apocalypse Now, look at us swapping trivia, is that um, Marlon Brando showed up on set so obese that Coppola was shocked and had to make a decision as they were getting ready to shoot his scenes to put him mainly in the dark because he was just too fat to look the way that Coppola wanted his character to look. Yes. Well, 
it's really very strange. I mean, the character was all strung out, uh, considering that the character was supposed to be, I think, a full full colonel. Uh, that really is not consistent with what I've known in the military about senior officers. They all mostly tend to be pretty fit, actually. Mm, back to but, Big you know, Bang. <laughs> but, you know, getting back to Big Bang, the thing that struck me, I started thinking about this, and it occurred to me, I, I thought, well, you know, first it's really a show about growing up and uh, growing pains. And then I thought, well, actually, uh, you can almost interpret it as uh, a contemporary version of The Wizard of Oz over 100 wow. years later. Because wow. you have, for instance, Penny, who, has, who leaves this drab world in Nebraska and comes out to the big lights, you know, the shining city of L.A., which is like Oz, and uh, in, in hoping to find, you know, she goes there accidentally because of the cyclone, whereas Penny goes there deliberately, but that's not where her home is going to be. She wants to get back home, and she finds out that her home is not going to be as an actress. Uh, it's going to be, uh, as it turns out, a pharmaceutical salesperson and, and now, of course, a mother. But you look at the other characters, you know, you have Raj's cinnamon, so he's Toto. And then Sheldon <laughs> is the tin, Sheldon is the tin man who needs a heart, and he gets it. Yeah. The scarecrow is, is Leonard because he needs, you know, he's the brain, but he's always trying to prove himself and meet his mother's approval, always trying to uh, compare himself to Sheldon, who he knows is, is rather a genius. And then Raj and Howard are both cowardly lions. They both fear women for an ad had done that for many years. They both had personal issues. When Howard was an astronaut, he was trying actually to get out of it, even during the survival school episode. So you can yes, see how the, how the Wizard of Oz, if you go back and look at it, you can see how it resonates with meaning for the cast of the Big Bang. I'm glad that you put a little thought into this, George. You know, George, one of the things that um, kind of took me by surprise last night on Stephen Colbert is during the spontaneous impromptu conversation, uh, Simon Helberg took a, a swipe at Cheers. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and what surprised me was that I thought if they were going to compare themselves to another show, it would have been Friends, not Cheers. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, actually, it's, it's, uh, that was kind of a, a discordant note for me because I thought that Cheers was, ex I thought that Cheers was excellent. Uh, you know, you look at shows like MASH, you look at shows like um, Seinfeld, and these are shows that, were, that had very long runs, um, yes. and Frasier as well, uh, which is my personal favorite. Yes. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like a little backhanded comment that wasn't necessary. I would have preferred, I thought so too. I would yeah. have preferred that he kind of stayed on point and talked about the show instead of trying to compare it to some of the uh, predecessors. Well, I know that uh, Simon Helberg made that wisecrack, and I think he's just the kind of guy who acts out. He seems very antic in his personality and his demeanor. There, I'll tell you what. I at that moment I was just thinking, okay, if they're comparing themselves to Cheers, the first metric there is longevity because I'm right. sure that they are very proud of having more uh, classic, not classic, but it's, of course it's a classic, but uh, studio sitcom episodes than any other. In that category, mm -hmm. they, they have longevity. Some people will argue they have the greatest quality, though not necessarily the, the greatest consistency, but then they had more episodes than everything everybody else to write and direct and act. So right. uh, you can look at it that way. And I think Cheers was 
You know, Cheers was every home run hitter who ever chased Babe Ruth looked to Babe Ruth and his record. I'm sure Hank Aaron did when he was in pursuit yeah. there. And so, and they look at Cheers like, okay, if that's the gold standard, how can we surpass that? In my opinion, The Big Bang Theory is a better show than Cheers. It is not necessarily a better show than Frasier, which would make it which would make Frasier the one case where I can think that the spin-off surpassed the original. The mother show was not as good as the offspring of Frasier, which was just brilliant with every episode I ever watched, and I saw almost all of them. <laughs> well, Frasier, I think, is a high-water mark in, uh, in contemporary comedy for TV. Uh, I, I think that it was consistently excellent, I go back, you know, I've got all the DVDs from Frasier, and I watch them, and I know the lines. And um, longevity counts for a lot. That does mean something. It's a, it's a measurable metric. However, uh, as you say, the show has been inconsistent, certainly so in the last couple of years. Uh, they just didn't have that high idol for the last couple of years. Some shows were good. Some shows were great. Some shows weren't. Uh, whereas with Frasier, I think that they consistently – uh, like a uh, like a vaulter, uh, consistently took the pole and made it over the uh, barrier every time. Yes, I, I think that they did, and we'll talk more about the uh, grand finale of the Big Bang Theory and related matters on the other side of a break. But I I will say that that I was very impressed that they were able to put something together when, admittedly, I felt that the show was limping. Big Bang Theory, in my mind, this season was limping toward the finish line. But then, in a blaze of glory, they made it a, a wonderfully loving tribute to the entire phenomenon and an epiphany for its main character. And the bottom line is love. I just thought that mm -hmm. you can't do it better than that. It was just amazing, and I'm, I was so grateful for that experience. It's emotionally with me still, and the reruns are too, so they're never really going to go away. It's just that the story is told, and now you can put it all in context as you're eating dinner and watching endless reruns. <laughs> yes, exactly we, so. We are talking to George Beam about the grand finale of The Big Bang Theory, the series finale that, in my opinion, is the best ever for any show. George has his wonderfully deep perspective on pop culture, on television, on the Big Bang Theory, on Young Sheldon, which continues. And we'll think of a few other things I'm sure to discuss as well. Stick with us. We'll just be gone a couple of minutes. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned into Seattle's home of alternative talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. 
Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing. It really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed George Beam, expert on the Big Bang Theory, to discuss the series finale and the end of an era. On Saturday, Mary Lee LeBay joins us once again, sharing her insights on past lives, reincarnation, and what it means for this life. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Revenge of the Benny. Revenge of the Benny, Revenge of the Nerds. Nice, nice, Gary. Excellent, excellent. Uh, We are talking with George Beam, who is the author of many, many books, over 30, and the one that I'm holding in my hand is Unraveling the Mysteries of the Big Bang Theory, and uh, Gary says it's going to have to be updated from 2011 to cover the whole thing. It'll probably be a thousand-page book by the time George Beam gets done writing it. Uh, George, if people would like to connect with you and see all the things that you're interested in in pop culture, where can they um, where can they find you? Well, you know, I have a I have a website at georgebeam.com, but it's kind of like a placeholder. I'm so busy writing that I just don't have the time uh, to be online much. In fact, I'm not on any social media at all. Um, my recommendation is for people to like go to Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble or to your independent bookstore and kind of find out what else I've what else I've written. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of lot on pop culture. Uh, you know, we're talking about nerds and whatnot. I did a, a quote book on Steve Jobs, which which did well. Um, and I think the best way for people to know me uh, really is through my books. I'm, I tend to be a very private person. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Go that, to Amazon. George Beam, yes. B-E-A-H-M. Throw that H in there. And I wanted to, I have a question that I've been thinking about for today, George. And Gary and I have talked about this a little bit. When you look at the ensemble cast, who is it that you think might break out successfully? And are they going to do it on their own or are they going to do it in another ensemble? Well, I think, um, if you were to talk about a character that probably could carry the show, uh, carry a show, I would say Howard. Oh, uh, interesting. Howard okay. has grown. Howard, you know, used to be a very 
uh, as we say in, in, in the writing field, a cardboard character. I mean, he was just a young, horny engineer, and that was his whole goal. And he had no other facets that were being developed. But he's changed really enormously on the show from being a, a young bachelor always in search of the next next girl as a conquest to becoming a, a fairly responsible you know husband and and father as well and so i think and also he's i think he's got a great comic range uh i love his impersonations he did um oh gosh who was it he did he did gary said that yeah al pacino and that just floored me i was laughing so hard you know, they were playing Dungeons and Dragons, and, yes. and he was a dungeon master, and he was using different yep. voices. He's, you know, he's very good at that kind of thing. He has a kind of a wry sense of humor. Uh, I certainly think if they were to do anything, they could start with him. Um, as far course, as, and you're thinking as far as television goes, that he could he could get another television series? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, I think he would be really perfect. Uh, we just don't know enough about the actor that does that plays Raj because he really n- never had to extend himself into into anything really different. It was such a to me an uh, an ordinary character. Uh, yes, because we didn't see any development. Um, we didn't see and, the development except that what what I saw over the years develop in him was the the air of frustration and then resignation as his personal life was a big long slow circle. Yeah, I mean, there, there's all of that, but you know, we uh, if Sheldon can make the changes that he made and adjust his life accordingly, you would think Raj would would progress at least at the same rate, or or maybe even even a little better. So, yes, that's that's, and we'll continue that discussion sometime on on the merits. I definitely see your your point of view. Jim Parsons has already done movies. He was in Hidden Figures. Yes. And I understand mm-hmm. he likes Broadway. He's done some... Lots of Broadway. Lots yeah. of Broadway. So I kind of see him going in that direction. Kaylee Cuoco has done, as as Gary said, television commercials. I could see her getting into movies. I, I, I She's kind well, of like a did, Jennifer actually, Aniston type. Yeah, she did do a movie. It was a Which movie one was about... That? about writers getting published and and uh i think it appeared a couple of years ago uh, it was I a didn't theatrical it. release oh so, i'll so be darn okay so she's got a gift for comedy um she you know, does jim, Pars- jim parsons can go anywhere and do anything he really he is can. brilliant i mean you're not That's... Gonna, you're not going to find a talent like his in the com- comedy field uh too often i mean he's he is in the first rank he definitely mm-hmm. is. That's why we played the so-called drop at the very beginning of the show. I wanted to use the Drake equation drop because he had to say that, and I don't know in how many takes, doesn't matter. He could do that, and I saw him do it time and again with these lengthy mm-hmm. lines. Scientific he had, and, and scientific, yeah. and to get it down. And there's one where he's repeating it under provocation from Kripke. Right, who's just right. playing him there and saying, what's that again? One more time and all that. And right. he just keeps going, boom, boom, boom. And I'm going, how in the world can an actor do that? Well, the del- uh, when I, I was really ga- uh, flabbergasted when I saw that episode, uh, Jim Parsons, to have to memorize all of that to begin with, <laughs> and then to have to reel it off, not once, but three times in quick succession, is really phenomenal. 
Uh, it's interesting, yes. too. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the original choice for Sheldon was not Jim Parsons. The original choice was uh, Johnny Galecki. He was the first oh, hire, the first person hired he for the cast. He said on Stephen Colbert last night, it, it kind of surprised me, he said that uh, I guess he was the first person for Big Bang Theory, he said, because I knew Chuck, and I assume right. he meant Chuck Laurie. And and I said to Gary, you know, it didn't occur to me. There had to be a first person, and he was the first person. But um, interestingly, that he didn't become the Sheldon character. Yeah, he decided not to, and I think, you know, and he and he said now, of course, with the benefit of retro, retrospection, he said that uh, you know Jim was just Jim is brilliant at what he does, and he's the better choice. Uh, but this all—it's interesting though. This all really goes back to something that most of your listeners have never seen, uh, which is—and in fact, they've never put it on any D- DVD as a bonus material. But there was actually a 30-minute pilot done with uh, Sheldon Leonard in the characters we know him and a young woman whose name I can't remember, uh, and that was a, a pilot that uh, appeared, and I've seen it on the Internet. I think at one point I was able to access it. I don't know if I still can, but uh, and if you see that, you can really see the bones of the show. I mean, it was very mm. rough, and um, the main care, the, the young woman that played the, played the Penny equivalent uh, was yes. not a good fit. I think that was the fault of the writers and not her. She probably could have yes. gone on and become a happy penny, but in the original um, pilot, she was this kind of this sarcastic, uh, domineering kind of woman, kind of snippy, and uh, that just wouldn't play well with an audience. For no, it, it, not not for that show. I, I'm glad they, they changed course on that. And that is the perfect segue, George Bean, because what I wanted to say to you is that I must give uh, credit, not that she needs any from me. She was brilliant throughout. But Kaylee Cuoco as Penny was the indispensable stimulus. It was, as you have said before, the show was Sheldon-centric. No argument there. But without Penny, they would be lacking the sex appeal and the stimulus to these men who don't even know how to be with the woman in the beginning. They're strange, exotic, tempting creatures that they completely misunderstand. And she was there putting reality most attractively in their faces every week. Well, exactly so. And that's why they had to change the female lead after the pilot, because they got the feedback. And the feedback was... Uh, you know, the character is just not sympathetic. character is not likable. Um, Kaylee Cuoco has a, a real co- uh, talent for comedy. And actually, when you look back at these old episodes and you watch her reaction to things, it's like she, she actually is reacting in real time. It's very, very convincing. And it's very funny. Uh, she's great at making expressions. She's great with making comments on the show that, that fit right in. And, you know, and I thought about it this morning, and I thought, the thing that I, one of the things I like most about the show is that you don't have what I consider to be the current sitcom formula, which is every, every single character is snarky. Every single character is sarcastic, and that's supposed to pass for wit. Right. And you don't really have that because, to me, sarcasm is uh, undisguised hostility. And, I agree uh, with you totally. And so what you have in, what you have in this show 
and it's one reason they lasted 12 seasons, is that these people were not spending all of their time denigrating each other. They spent all of their time trying to figure out how to get along. And it reminded me of something that Kurt Vonnegut's son, Mark, uh, told him when his father asked him, why, why, are, we on, why are we here on Earth? Uh, his son is a, is a doctor. I think he's a psychologist. And he said, well, Dad, we're here to get through this thing we call life uh, because we're all in this together. And I thought of that when in, in context of the show because that's how the show is. They all needed each other to get through life. Uh, and to understand it and to come to grips with it. And with Penny, you know, she was a, she's a great choice. She was a great choice for the uh, friendly neighbor, and she really was indispensable in the show because of her role as a mother figure early on and, the, and being the interface, interface for the female world, which they had no entree into. So they you know, progressed to the point where they went beyond Penny as a sex goddess and then Penny as a friend. And so I thought all of that that was handled very sensitively and very well because, you know, I mean, I've known, and I came from science fiction and fantasy background. Uh, I was a fan. I read science fiction and fantasy. The world has changed now. It's become mainstream. You've got these Mm -hmm. gorgeous young actors on, on TV doing interviews saying, oh, well, you know, I'm a geek. Well, lady, not really. You're 20 years old. You're 25. You're gorgeous. You've never had anything happen to you when you were younger. You've never been taunted. You've never had a kick-me sign taped to your back, which I remember having had that in high school. Uh, And, you know, the whole community of of geeks really came from science fiction fans and comic book fans uh, who were uncomfortable socially. Uh, not only with women, but with people in general. And they went to went to fandom as a way to escape from the real world. And so they found other people who thought like them, and they banded together. And so for me, the show really does have a resonance for people that would not really consider themselves nerds, because it is a, a, it's a closed community. But now, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I sort of feel like an outsider, too. I kind of was set upon and put upon when I was a child and when I was younger. So I think the show had real meaning for people that came from that subculture, which now has become a very, very mainstream when you go to San Diego Comic-Con every year. It's, it's entire families that show up. It's a so Super it's like, Bowl. It's, so it's like, yeah, so it's like the celebration of the nerds. Yes. And, you know, and speaking of that, there there were the secondary characters, the, the mothers and the fathers, uh, the, uh, the the geologist, Kripke, and I was glad they, they paid a little bit of extra homage to uh, Stuart because yes. he, he was very close to being a main character. Yeah. He had enough of a role there, and he really struggled with, uh, with his life as the comic store mm-hmm. uh, owner. And um, and and all his his physical problems, his 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 uh, everything that was going on with him. It was kind of nice that he got a girlfriend at the end, that he I got know. Denise. Yeah. Well, he got it in a way. He he was able to turn all that quirkiness to best effect and realize his dream in a way that Raj was just not able to do. My whole thing with with Raj boils down to he just never got the formula, this brilliant astrophysicist 
couldn't get the equation to balance in his own life. And it's sad there and the writers did what they did there. And we may not be thrilled with that at the end of the series, but I, I know people like that. There have been times before I got lucky with the, my partner here when there were times when I could relate very closely to Raj. I was that guy, essentially. So I, mm -hmm. I do understand it. But I wanted to ask you, George, I wanted to ask you and Suzanne a question because I have my own take on this. And while we still have time, I wanted to get this in. The week before the grand finale, the week before, what I saw happen was just wonderful in terms of pure human relations and familial relations. They had to deal with um, with Leonard's mother. I mean, this is uh, Christine Baranski. You're not going to mm -hmm. just, you know. She got much better uh, isolated treatment in her relationship with Leonard than they did with Sheldon's mother, which is strange to me. But nonetheless, the week before, it seems to me, and I'd love to get your take on Suzanne's, it seems that at the end of the day, between a child and his mother, all that um, <laughs> well, all that Leonard was left with, the bottom line is all that Leonard was left with, the only option was forgiveness. Yes, and I think that really set up the last episode as well. Um, you had to have, you know, for a lot of for a lot of good reasons, you have to have closure when you get to the end of a long running series, and it wouldn't have been appropriate or satisfying to the audience to have this emotional entanglement and disentanglement that he's had with his mother, and the need that he that he has for approval from his mother uh, to be ignored or left hanging. And also for um, his mother, Christine Brand, play, you know, playing, uh, Chris, you know, Christine Bransky, uh, being the mother, it was appropriate for her to reach out as well and acknowledge that she wasn't the perfect mother. So that closure was necessary, and I think it was handled very well. I, you know, I thought it was handled well. I also thought it was handled realistically. And quite frankly, that very same thing happened to me. I had a very good relationship with my mother, although she was critical. And um, and when I was living in Seattle and she was living in Florida, I wanted her to, um, you know, come out and, and see me singing in the choir and see my life and, and spend time with Gary and I. And, um, and she moved to Seattle, but didn't want to do any of those things. And it was one Mother's Day when I was hearing our minister talk about you have the perfect mother because you either want to be like her or you don't want to be anything like her, but you got the perfect mother. And I was thinking, I was sitting in church and I'm saying, how can I be this old and be looking for my mother's approval? And I started laughing so hard during this sermon because I realized I was being ridiculous. No, and no, I... you weren't, no, no, you weren't being ridiculous. It doesn't matter what age you are. Uh, you're always going to look to your parents and want their right. approval. But I stopped and because, that uh, day. And, and yeah. that was what I wanted to say. That was the day that I said, you know what? I know who I am. I love who I am. And I really don't need her approval when I saw that for me, it was looking mm -hmm. ridiculous. And, and after that point, our relationship became even better because I wasn't looking to have her 
uh, do that for me. And that's what okay. I thought Leonard was doing. He didn't well, need to have his mom do anything for him anymore. Right. Well, he was, he was done with that. I think there's an important distinction between um, needing somebody's approval and wanting somebody's approval. And so, you know, in Leonard's case, uh, he really did need his mother's approval and it took a long, a long time to realize that he, as an adult, he really had his own identity and she had to respect that. And she had, and and so I think the closure was necessary. And as I as I said, I think it did set up the final episode. A lot of the loose ends were tied up. Uh, yes. Of course, the whole thing about the Nobel, uh, I knew that was coming a long, long time ago. I couldn't see. I figured the two things that they couldn't change would be that and fixing the elevator, and everything else <laughs> was everything else was optional. So. Yeah, and Gary called those two things as well, George. So you and he were right on the on the same page there. And He's... I never get the arc of a of a whole series right, but I knew that time because yeah. what I thought is that it, yes, he will get the Nobel Prize, but he can't do it mm -hmm. alone. Or the mm -hmm. basic premise of the show, this growth curve, this epiphany right. of life, you'd have to be able to to rely on somebody and accept that responsibility to share credit and share love. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit, I didn't see um, Amy Farrah Fowler as being the critical point in terms of him getting the Nobel Prize. I thought it would be a, a standalone thing where where he would be getting it himself. But I, I'm glad I was wrong. I'll tell you where I wish I was wrong. I was absolutely right. It's eerie how this came to me. And I absolutely knew and knew that I knew that they were going to write off the character of Mrs. Wallowitz, that, that Howard's mother would pass away and would no longer be a part of it. I didn't know the reason why. I just knew they were gonna write her out as sure as I'm sitting here, but I didn't know why that would be necessary. And of course, uh, Carol and Susie mm -hmm. passed away uh, tragically. Right. And look, George, at the number of people, famous people, Stan Lee comes to mind, Stephen Hawking, of course. Mm -hmm. In the course of that show, these great people actually died. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, but look at the guest stars. They had they had just a stellar list of guest stars. Uh, some of them were on once. You know, uh, we haven't mentioned or, or talked about uh, Will Wheaton, but boy, I absolutely loved Will Wheaton in every episode. <laughs> and George Takei, Takei, however he pronounces his name. I thought right. that George, George's presence was just hilarious. Um, and the, and uh, my favorite has got to be uh, the other comedian who, who uh, was Professor Proton, uh, Bob, uh, Bob Newhart. Newhart yes. Bob Newhart. I mean, those three, those three really stand out. They do, and I'm going to throw a little credit the way of that geologist. That guy was hilarious in that show. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the supporting cast and the cameos added such a rich dimension to the show, and a, need, and a much needed dimension as well. It really fleshed it out. And I thought of you know Frasier because. Frazier was the same way. Uh, these supporting characters had an important role to play, and they played it well. And that's certainly true in the Big Bang Theory. And we have to be, we have to be th uh, in the last three minutes here, we've got to be fair to Kripke. Way to oh, yeah. ruin your reputation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it was perfect for him to call and try to make the fake call. But, of course, you know, yes. with his speech impediment, uh, right. they knew it was Kripke. <laughs> 
But he, he had, had to do one one last final prank, you know. Yeah. To try to yeah, yeah. to try to yeah. zets Sheldon. That's surprise, exactly. surprise. You're still a loser. <laughs> yep, yep. And he doesn't know why that why the children all love him so. They whaff and whaff. Yeah, they whaff and whaff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when Sheldon goes back to, after the ceremony, it's it's Kripke that's going to have to acknowledge finally that you know Sheldon did go where no man is. No man has gone before in uh, in the current cast. So yes, and, and Kripke, Kripke also is going to have to acknowledge it uh, more excruciatingly than the rest. I figure for the simple reason that he was extremely status conscious. Oh yes, I mean very competitive, but uh, right. he just you know he just never never wanted to to give uh, Sheldon the the due honors that he really deserved. And now That's he's got true. Two. He's got and two. they, they were always going at each other, as it were, wobato a wobato. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, you know, I just love the character. It's just one. He's, he was just wonderful. Well, it's the end of an era for sure. It. Uh, I'm. I'm glad they did it as well as they did. It is going to be uh, a boxed set, I'm sure. In the, with extra commentary, director's cut, etc. Exactly, with all that good stuff, and, and, we'll buy and it continue too. for years. Gary said they'll be they'll be running these oh. reruns for the rest of our lives, probably, or, or a very long uh, for a very long time. The way they have some other super great yeah, shows, it's, it's sort of like a Mobius strip. You know, it's just going to keep going on and on forever. And there'll be a big uh, box set, and I really hope they put that. Um, initial pilot that has never been seen on yes. TV and or online, and put it as a DVD extra because until you see that, uh, you don't really you can't really appreciate the bones, the bare bones of how they constructed this show. You can You're see absolutely it right. Once you see that, so yeah, if anybody out also... there has any connection <laughs> with uh, Chuck Lorre, uh, beat him <laughs> over the head it. and say, you know, you got to put in that. That you got to put in that original uh, unaired episode, and the behind-the-scenes extra after the finale as well. I'll buy that set. George, you were the only man for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to have you back on other topics. Well, this has been such a journey, and this was great to talk to you on about the Big Bang. I just don't know what I'm going to do for 30 minutes on Thursday night anymore. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> You'll fill it with something creative, I'm sure. Thank you, George Beam, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to our show. We'll be back tomorrow at 10 a.m. with another live show right here on AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.